Welcome to our study today in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Three verses, but with such rich depth of content. The paragraph is worthy of our entire class time today. Paul's hope to see Timothy, Paul's interest in Timothy's faithfulness, the mystery of godliness, the deity of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel, all of that and more in three verses here at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It will work well to our spiritual benefit to take our time and to examine carefully what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You see what I mean? How much is packed into three verses in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. Let's begin here. There is this personal touch we sometimes see in the writings of Paul, like little windows into his heart. And here is one of those. I hope to come to you soon. The Apostle Paul was a man of warmth who wanted people to know that he wanted to be with them. And we understand that. It makes Paul human. He was not just a mechanical instrument in the hand of God. He was not just like a dictation machine or a robot. God used him, but Paul was a human being with needs and affections and emotions such as we all have. He wanted to be with Timothy. You see that often in just these two letters. He loved this young man. They certainly were compatible. They shared common interest, and most important, they were members of the same body, the same spiritual family, the Lord's church. Paul said here, I hope to come to you soon. Then it is like Paul said, I would like to be there, but since I can't be there, I'm writing these things to you. And here comes the purpose statement. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Remember I said there is a lot packed into these verses. Let's see what's here. It is certainly true, and I have mentioned this often, 
that participants in an assembly or a class should have behavior that corresponds to the occasion and the purpose. While that is important, this statement in 1 Timothy 3.15 includes the idea of our behavior when we're together, but has a broad scope. See, in the assemblies of the saints, there should be appropriate behavior. But when we dismiss these assemblies, when we leave out there, there should also be behavior that is befitting people who are members of the household of God, the church. This verse is not just another verse about conduct in the assemblies, though that is included. This moves outside in a broader way into every facet of daily living. Paul couldn't be with Timothy, but he wanted him to have instruction from God about his behavior and the behavior that he would be teaching others to have as a member of the household of God, the church. There is something here, maybe incidental to the main point, but useful just to help our understanding and perhaps valuable when we teach others. There's two expressions right alongside each other. I want you to look at here, the household of God and the church of the living God. Those are not two different institutions or bodies. There is not the household of God and then something else over here, the church of the living God. We know that because Paul said in Ephesians chapter four and verse four, there is one body. So all the followers of Christ, all the saved are comprehended in the expression household of God. Another way those people are identified is the church of the living God. Same people, two different descriptions. So members of the household are the same as the church, the one body. Nothing in this context or anywhere in the New Testament suggest any distinction. Here's an important part of this, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Other translations, King James, pillar and ground. New American Standard, pillar and support. New International Version, pillar and foundation. What we're looking at here is construction terminology. It seems to me both terms relate to the strength of a building. If the pillar or pillars are insufficient to hold the structure together, if the foundation is cracked or weak or inadequate, the whole structure is subject to compromise. As members of the church, in our work individually and as a unit, a local church, we ought to be giving people the strength they need for living. And that strength is found in the truth. By living the truth and teaching the truth, we become strong people. And we become for weak, sinful people, the messengers and the living presentations of the strength that they need which is the truth of God.
We derive our strength from God's truth as members of his church, which should naturally lead to our giving to others the truth they need for strength in life. No doubt, that's an important concept in this passage. Now, we shift gears, but not dramatically, because at the center of the truth is the head of the church, Jesus Christ, who is now described in these poetic terms. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And you know what this is called, this poetic description? The mystery of godliness. Because God kept this unrevealed for a time until Christ came. It was a mystery. It has now been manifested. Those who embrace this mystery and receive God's gracious offer by the activity of their faith are able to be godly people. Thus, the mystery of godliness. It is suggested, though it falls short of objective truth, that this may have been a hymn or a phrase from a hymn used by Christians in the first century. That's interesting. Interesting to think about that, but whether that was so or not, the truth of this poetic expression remains. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's look at these as couplets. So Jesus appeared in a body, but was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus had always existed, but came to the earth in a body, manifested in the flesh. But the Holy Spirit announced he was deity, and in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he was vindicated. The Holy Spirit's part in this is stated directly over in Romans 1, verse 4. Take up the next two. Seen by angels, but was preached or proclaimed among the nations. Jesus' incarnation, life in resurrection, was not just a show for heaven or for angels to behold and marvel at. These historical events were proclaimed by the apostles among the nations. It wasn't just a cosmic event, but for the world to witness and hear. The next two. Believed on in the world and taken up in glory. This line declares the result of the previous line. So the proclamation of the gospel of Christ to the world led to faith on the part of many hearers. And the final phrase provides a fitting conclusion. The Messiah's triumph in glory, raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. So let's listen to this carefully. 
I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I have some follow-up, some takeaways. I want to talk to you about belief and behavior. Both are mentioned and connected in this passage and all through Scripture. Everywhere in the Bible, belief in God and behavior in keeping with His law are connected, one leading to the other. If you believe in God in the most complete sense of heart and life, you'll want all your thinking and behavior to follow the teachings of His Word. Here in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16 is one compact paragraph where this connection emerges. Belief in God with confidence in the mystery of godliness is the undergirding of your behavior as a member of the household of God. Moving back prior to this text in chapter 1, Timothy is to be a man of good conscience and faith that produces this interest in behavior, good behavior as a member of the household of God. All through the Bible, this is clear to every honest reader of the text. Belief in God, along with confidence in the deity and death of Christ, leads us to want to be well-behaved members of the household of God. The greatness of the church is always associated with the power of truth, and the deity of the head, both brought up here. And here's something else that makes this text so rich. The power and strength of truth from God and the power and strength of who Jesus is brought together here. And so if you have a good grasp of the truth from God given in his word, and you know who Jesus is as described here in his deity, this is the foundation of your spiritual strength. Let's explore a little more about this concept of mystery. In the New Testament, we are told God's mystery is revealed. In fact, it can be said the New Testament is God's mystery revealed. The thought embedded in this is profound. It is God has revealed himself to man <clears throat> in nature first and then through his relationship with the Jewish nation and then supremely through Jesus Christ. And then God has revealed through the apostles in the New Testament, everything we need to know and to do to be saved. A great deal of weight is given to this all through the New Testament. The mystery revealed. 
I want you to listen to Romans 16, 25 and 26. And if you struggle with this concept of mystery, or you know someone who struggles with it, write down this passage. I'll give you a moment. Romans 16, 25 and 26. Now to him who is able, <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery <clears throat> which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Also jot down first Corinthians two, seven and Ephesians one, nine through 10. Add to that Ephesians 3, 3 through 5. So, revelation of the mystery. Revelation is conceived of as unveiling what was already true, whether as an enduring reality, as past event, or as foreordained future. Although whatever is being revealed was true all along, it was previously concealed or unknown, but now it's revealed on the pages of the New Testament. This becomes important when you're reading or studying the New Testament with someone and you come to the word mystery. And, and some varieties of religious doctrine insist the true gospel is a mystery and only with the baptism of the Holy Spirit or a direct indwelling, are you able to understand the mystery? That's not correct. Paul said, when you read, Ephesians 3, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 16, finally, reflects the very core of our faith. Manifested in the flesh, that's the incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, giving testimony of Jesus' person and work, especially by his resurrection. Seen by angels, that reveals that heaven was watching. The heavenly hosts became witnesses of the cross, proclaimed among the nations. That's the Great Commission. Believed on in the world shows the function of evidence that produces active faith taken up in glory, a reference to the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. These are not incidentals inside the narrative. This is the core of our faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening.